Watch and listen to the talking news every day at 12 noon and 6 p.m. on Channel 96 Comcast Xfinity and Channel 30 Verizon Fios. It can also be heard Mondays and Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesdays at 12.30 p.m. on Channel 9 Xfinity and Channel 39 Fios. Listen anytime on the BMC Podcast Network on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search for the Belmont Media Podcast Network. And now on to the talking news. Public Works Facility Nears Completion by Joanna K. Juvalis. Public Works employees in Belmont who work long hours during snowstorms and respond to messy emergencies such as sewer backups and water main breaks will soon have a place they can take a shower, wash their clothes, and eat a meal and rest. The interior of the DPW facility at 37C Street has been renovated with a 3,500-square-foot structure that has been added onto the rear of the building with ample locker space, showering facilities, and bathrooms for both male and female employees. Mike Santoro, the Assistant Director of Public Works and Highway Division Manager, who has been with the department for 39 years, is very pleased with how the project has turned out. When you have been here as long as I as as long as I have been here, to see these improvements, I feel like a kid on Christmas morning, he said. The project, which began in June, is nearly complete. Lockers and furnishings are almost in. Anne Marie Mahoney, the chairman of the building uh, committee for the for the police and the DPW projects, is planning a ribbon cutting uh, in early April. The $1.6 million project, 40 years in the making, will give an additional 10 to 15 years of life to the facility. It was funded by the town without hitting the taxpayers' pocketbooks. Mahoney said a new DPW facility is still on the list of major capital town projects developed from a feasibility study in 2005. The current estimate for a new facility is 25 to 35 million. I think the original building is still desperately in need of replacement, but this renovation and addition will tie them over until we can get a full rebuild financed, she said. Santoro said that he is very, very thankful for uh, all the volunteers like Mahoney who have helped make the project possible. Chairperson Anne Marie Mahoney and her committee have been extremely involved and have always kept the BTW, the DPW in the town in their best interest. Without them, this project would not have been so successful. The town is very lucky to have people like them who volunteer their time in these very important projects, he said. And now over to my colleague, Claire. Thank you, Bob. Sharp as a tack, What May Sustain Your Brain by Bonnie Liebman. Brain ABCs. Your brain faces two major threats, the tiny strokes of cerebrovascular disease and the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's. And both can start long before you know it. 30% of people in their 70s and 40% of those in their 80s have elevated and amyloid plaques but no symptoms, says David Knopman, professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Ditto for tiny infects, brain cells that have died from lack of oxygen after tiny blood vessels ruptured or became blocked. 
Brain scans show vascular disease in 15% of people by age 70 and in 70% of people by age 90, says Nopperman. That's in people with no memory loss. Roughly half of people with memory loss have both types of damage, and one threat can alter the impact of the other. Vascular factors do not affect plaques and tangles. The primary pathologies of Alzheimer's disease, says Notman, but the less vascular burden you have, the more Alzheimer's burden you can tolerate. That means that the onset of cognitive impairment due purely to plaques and tangles can be delayed. That's a really important point. Luckily, you can protect the blood vessels in your brain and elsewhere at the same time, and the earlier you start, the better. Beginning in early adulthood, freedom from cardiovascular risk factors, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, obesity, lack of exercise, smoking, eating an unhealthy diet should have benefits later in life, says Notman. The American Heart Association calls them life's simple seven, and it's a scientific validated story. That's the take-home message. Here's the latest from recent or ongoing studies. The Finger Trial. In 2015, the Finnish Geriatric Intervention Study to Prevent Cognitive Impairment and Disability made a splash. That's called finger for short. Medicine to protect the brain is is reported. Finger looked at roughly 1,200 people aged 60 to 77 who had no cognitive problems but were at increased risk for cognitive decline, says Baker. All scored average or slightly below average on memory tests and had risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or obesity. The researchers wanted to test a combination of a healthier diet, exercise, getting people engaged with their community, cognitive stimulation, and watching their medical numbers, their blood pressure, lipids, blood sugar, etc., explains Baker. The participants were randomly assigned to receive either standard health advice or lifestyle intervention, including diet and exercise sessions with nutritionists, physiotherapists, cognitive training with psychologists and computer programs, medical checkups, and social activities. People who are lonely and isolated don't do well, notes Baker. The results, after two years, the people who received this hefty lifestyle intervention had better cognitive function than the people who got just the basic health information. Their overall score on a battery of tests was 25% higher. It's phenomenal that you can improve the health of your brain by repairing the health of your body, says Baker. Now, here's Max. Thanks, Claire. Have we reached peak umami by Elizabeth G. Dunn? Shortly after Momofuku Sambar opened in New York City in 2006, the chef David Chang began serving a dish there called Bo Sam. The classic Korean recipe calls for boiled pork belly with cabbage leaves and condiments, but in typical Chang fashion, he dialed the flavor up to 11. The Momofuku version starred in a pork, a pork butt cured overnight, then slow roasted with a coating of brown sugar and salt, that formed a crust the color of mahogany. Diners wrapped ribbons of that roast pork in lettuce, 
along with briny oysters, rice, kimchi, ginger scallion sauce, and samjang, a spicy Korean dipping sauce. Word of the -the off-the-menu stunner rippled sensationally through the local dining scene. The secret to Bo Sam's mind-bending deliciousness was umami, the meaty taste conferred by the amino acid glutamate, which the Japanese chemist Kikune Ikeda first identified in his dashi broth in 1908. Four basic tastes have prevailed since antiquity, salty, sweet, sour, and bitter. Dr. Ikeda argued that umami was a fifth. Though the term is Japanese, umami is a global phenomenon. The same savory magic in pork and oysters runs through anchovies, seaweed, and mushrooms, not to mention breast milk and amniotic fluid. In addition to glutamate, two other molecules, inosinate and guanolate, uh, emit umami. Aging, caramelizing, drying, and fermenting intensify it. Garum, the fermented fish sauce ancient Romans adored, teemed with umami, as do oyster sauce in China, miso in in Japan, Worcestershire sauce in England, and magi seasoning the world over. Dr. Ikeda crystallized glutamate into a sprinkle-on flavor enhancer, monosodium glutamate, or MSG. Today it makes Cool Ranch Doritos and Chick-fil-A sandwiches crave-worthy. When Momofuku's Bo Sam appeared in 2006, umami was just beginning to gain recognition among American chefs. Since then, Google searches for umami in the U.S. have increased more than tenfold. The hashtag umami now accompanies nearly 400,000 Instagram posts. Unilever, the maker of Knorr bullion, long used as a speedy source of glutamates, reported that sales for the bullion category surged 5% in 2019 alone. The same year, grocer Trader Joe's, fast casual restaurant chain Sweetgreen, and the Momofuku restaurant and group all began marketing umami-rich seasoning blends and the word umami entered the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. I first heard the term umami sometime in the aughts on the Bravo TV culinary competition Top Chef. Host Tom Colicchio uh, recalls that in 2006, when the show premiered, the profession was just getting acquainted with umami. Quote, it was a new toy, he said. As contestants used glutamates to pack maximum power into each bite, judges leaned hard on the word umami. We were trying to describe food to television viewers, and it gave us another descriptor, Mr. Colaccio said. Dana Cohen, the former editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine, pegs Umami's rise to the emergence of Asian-American chefs such as David Chang, Roy Choi, Edward Lee, and Davy Boyan, whose dishes relied on the intense flavors of kimchi, gachujang, and exo sauce. It was part of the evolution of food in America, from the mild flavors of a Eurocentric canon to the opening of our mind to other cultures, Ms. Cohen said. This was when we went from restraint to power in food. Mr. Chang said he grew up with a jar of MSG next to the salt and pepper, but didn't learn the term umami until the early 2000s, when he was conceiving Momofuku noodle bar. I would get Japanese ramen magazines and have them translated, he said you would see the word umami over and over again. Even as umami came to signify sophistication among epicures, Americans widely regarded MSG as unsafe, despite the absence of scientific evidence. 
thanks in part to a letter in 1968 to the New England Journal of Medicine published under the heading Chinese Restaurant Syndrome. Entirely anecdotal, the letter posited MSG as a cause of numbness, heart palpitations, and weakness. Given that MSG was by then a common ingredient in American processed foods, media outlets' wholesale acceptance of the syndrome and its connection to Chinese food appears sloppy at best, at worst, racist. The MSG industry responded by founding the Glutamate Association, an organization aimed at destigmatizing the seasoning through lectures and publications. In recent years, a trend toward meatless eating has provided another platform for umami's punch. At the New York restaurant Loring Place, chef Dan Kluger combines miso with parmesan and lemon in a powerhouse vinaigrette. For a hit of pure glutamates, he mists crudités with kombu-laced water. Cooking technique plays a role, too. There's a lot to be said for high-heat roasting, he said, and grilling really changes the the vegetables and brings out umami flavor. The recipes at, at right, all meatless, reveal a new, newly nuanced deployment of umami that's gaining traction. Mr. Kluger's roasted honey nut squash is a study in balance. A glaze of umami-rich miso, chili paste, citrus, and maple syrup enlivens the earthy squash. Raquel Pelzel, author of the 2019 cookbook Umami Bomb, uses soy sauce to instantly inject depth into a marinara sauce minus the usual slow simmer, and cheddar to subtly up the oomph of waffles. Ms. Pelzel has long used glutamate-rich ingredients to coax her kids into devouring a mostly vegetarian diet. You can totally transform a vegetable by not just using one umami ingredient, but thoughtfully pairing them to bring that much more flavor and intensity, she said. She recommends starting slow, often a splash of soy sauce or a dollop of miso is all you need. Over to you, Bob. Nice job, Max. Building a New Home for Craft Beer Cellar by Joanna K. Juvalis. Fans of the Craft Beer Cellar in Belmont Center will soon have a bigger space to uh, shop in, not too far from the current location on Leonard Street. This spring, Craft Beer Cellar is planning to re- relocate from their home since 2010 at 51 Leonard Street to a space with 3,000 more square feet at 75 Leonard Street that was formerly the Foodies Market. Craft Beer is taking one-third of the former Foodies space, which is a total of 15,000 square feet. Suzanne Shacklow, founder of Craft uh, Beer, said she would not reveal what else is going into the space, but promises it will be epic. She is excited about the new space because it will allow them to have a wider space to showcase and sell their expansive selection of beers and wine. The new space is also located closer to the 28-seat event space where their beer siege programs are held at 85 Leonard Street. Shacklow said that the new store will also have an expanded refrigerated section for cold beer as well as an expanded wine selection. They also plan to sell food items such as cheese, cured meats, and other snacks to pair with their beverages. Craft Beer opened its first store in Belmont Center on November the 10th, uh, 2010. 
Since then, it has become a franchise with 26 additional stores nationwide. Belmont is their busiest store, said Shaq Lowe. And now over to Claire. Thanks, Bob. Exercise and heart fat. Excess fat around the heart is linked to a higher risk of heart disease. Could exercise trim that fat? Danish researchers randomly assigned 39 sedentary people with abdominal obesity to aerobic training or high-intensity interval training on a stationary bike. Strength training three to five sets of 10 medium-load exercises or no exercise. Both exercise groups had supervised workouts for 45 minutes, three times a week. After 12 weeks, epicardial heart fat, which is next to the heart muscle, was reduced by 32% in the aerobic group and by 24% in the strength group. But only strength training reduced pericardial heart fat, which is in and on the membrane enclosing the heart. What to do? This study can't prove that exercise trims heart fat because it was designed to find out how exercise curbs belly fat. But how many reasons do you need to get moving? Now, over to Max. In a follow-up on the quick study on diet, exercise, and more, we have sugary drinks and diabetes. Both sugary drinks and fruit juices may raise your risk of type 2 diabetes and not just by leading to weight gain. Researchers tracked roughly 192,000 men and women for up to 26 years. Those who consumed at least one daily 8-ounce serving of drinks that are high in either added or fruit sugars, which included soda, energy drinks, sports drinks, fruit drinks, and fruit juice, over four years had a 23% higher risk of type 2 diabetes than those who consumed less than one serving a week. Weight gain explained roughly a quarter of the increased risk. Although the scientists took many other factors into account, it's possible that something else about sugary beverage drinkers explains their high risk. What to do? Replace sugary drinks with water, unsweetened coffee or tea, or low-fat milk. Re replace fruit juice with whole fruit. Over to you, Bob. Thanks, Max. Tough two for the Belmont boys hockey, submitted by uh, Cheryl Grace. The boys hockey team could use a time machine that can simply spin back a few seconds. As with many athletic contests, the outcome of their past two games were heavily influenced by just a couple of seconds uh, of a hard-fought 45 minutes of play. During the Winchester game on the 8th of February, it took until the second period for a shot from the blue line by Henry Stonehouse to actually find its way to uh, Matt Brody's uh, stick, who then tapped it to uh, Ben Fesey for a score. Belmont held the lead for the rest of the game. With 40 seconds left in the game, Belmont had a face-off in their offensive zone, but could not keep it there. Winchester took the puck back up the ice and was able to take advantage of some tired Belmont legs to get the tying score with just 18 seconds left. That tie felt a bit like a loss. The team traveled to Reading on the 12th of February. Reading, ranked ahead of uh, Belmont in all the polls, has not yet sealed their bid for the state tournament. The rink was rocking with Reading supporters on their senior night. Belmont got the first goal at the end of the first period when uh, Marco Santagatti uh, took advantage of a clearing in front of him and put the puck in point blank. Unfortunately, 
Santa Gaddy. Uh, unfortunately for Santa Gaddy, Redding decided they needed to try to neutralize him. So every time the refs weren't looking, he was jabbed and knocked. Finally, in the third period, the refs caught the extracurricular activity and called a Redding penalty. Early in the second period, Redding was able to tie it up with a goal from their junior, Landon Gerato. The rest of the second period saw the teams trading shots and goalies making nice saves. And now over to Claire. Thank you, Bob. Not taking freedom or days for granted. Iwo Jima Vet Learns Lessons the Hard Way by Joe Fitzgerald. There's been a lot written these past few days about the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Iwo Jima, that unspeakable World War II bloodbath that claimed the lives of almost 6,000 American troops and 20,000 Japanese soldiers. Iwo Jima still reverberates in our military history, thanks to a picture shot by AP photographer Joe Rosenthal showing six Marines struggling to raise old glory on a makeshift flagpole atop Mount Suribachi. Their names have been immortalized. Do yourself a favor and read Flags of Our Fathers by James Bradley, or find a recording of Johnny Cash's Ballad of Ira Hayes. But little has ever been recorded about a fellow Leatherneck from Massachusetts named Chet Gould, who left his fingerprints there, too. As the old adage notes, what goes up must come down, and so it was with that flag that was hoisted 75 years ago yesterday. It was decided to bring it home for display in traveling war-bond tours, and Gould, a native of Plymouth, assigned to the 5th Amphibious Corps, was ordered to retrieve it. My platoon commander never told me why it was coming down, he once recalled here. He just told me to find someone to go up there with me. So up we went, following the same trail those other six had followed. It didn't have metal grommets. It was tied to that pole with a rope that had been part of medic Doc Bradley's equipment used to drag soldiers out of harm's way. So I undid the rope, stuck the flag under my jacket, and we descended as fast as we could because we were open targets for snipers. Then I tur- turned it over to our headquarters. To me, it was just an assignment. I never thought of it as anything bigger than that. I was just doing my duty, doing what I had to do. Gold, who died seven years ago at 95, eventually put Iwo Jima on a back burner settling in San Antonio, where he worked in medical photography. I can tell you this from talking with other wives, his widow, Mary Ann, to whom he was wed for 70 years, said. When these men came home, they did not talk about it much. They didn't want to relive it, I guess, but they had nightmares for years. Following the publication of Bradley's book in 2000 and Iwo Jima's reenactment, took place in a neighboring Texas town, and Chet and Marianne were invited. It was extremely moving, she recalled. We were stopped so many times by people hungry for information from someone who had been there. I cried, but Chet never said a word. He did, however, share a thought. So many people take their days for granted. I don't do that. They take their freedom for granted, too. I don't do that either. Now... Here's Max. 
Thank you, Claire. Library lines from the Belmont Public Library. Author Marjan Kamali to speak, 11 a.m., March 9th. Author Marjan Kamali will speak on her novel, The Stationery Shop, at Books and Bites in the Assembly Room of the Belmont Public Library. This novel is set in Tehran in 1953, against the backdrop of the Iranian coup, and is about a young couple in love who are separated on the eve of their marriage. They are reunited 60 years later, after having moved to live independent lives in America, to discover the truth about what happened on that fateful day in the town square. Marjan Kamali was born in Turkey to Iranian parents and spent her childhood in Kenya, Germany, Turkey, Iran, and the U.S. She studied English literature at the University of California, Berkeley, and received her MBA from Columbia University and her MFA from New York University. Her debut novel, Together T, was a Massachusetts Book Award finalist. All are welcome to attend this free program sponsored by the Friends of the Belmont Public Library. Refreshments will be provided. Copies of the stationery shop will be available for purchase and signing. Back to you, Bob. Along with my colleagues, Claire and Max, we thank you for listening to the Talking News and hope you've enjoyed the show. We will return next week for another edition of Local News Happenings Around Belmont.